0: Welcome to the Revelation Podcast. We're so happy that you're here with us today. In today's episode, Dr. Neil Sawatsky looks at the time of the final judgment. What will that look like and who will be there? To hear the answer to these questions, here is Dr. Neil Sawatsky. If you believe what we've been talking about for the last several months, you then have a very, very unique belief. If you believe it to be true, then you are also very optimistic. Because what we look at when it comes to end times is the most optimistic worldview that can be expressed anywhere. And the interesting thing about it is that our worldview for the future is based on information that has come to us from heaven. And because that information is godly and its source and origin is from the mind of God, He has communicated it to the mind of men, and uh, we are thankful for that. So when I speak on the book of the Revelation, I am actually speaking to you of something that was revealed, not to be clouded over, not to be made muddy, not to be confused with so much ideology that's not based on Scripture, but you take it the way it is said. And if you take it the way it is said, it makes the most sense. So again, I just push you on to believe the literal interpretation of the Bible. Because how can you know, if you don't take it literally, how can you know that you're actually talking truth? I believe in application. I believe that there are times when God gives us some sort of a picturesque language. And that's sometimes difficult to decipher. But when he says in a sentence, you dis- you just simply look at the senses, you dissect it, you diagnose what has been said, you come to conclusions. And so I just want you to, again to go to Revelation. And if you go to chapter 20, that's where we are tonight, Revelation chapter 20. And I just want, first of all, introduce the subject to you. I want to talk about the categories a final judgment, because that's what we find in the 20th chapter of Revelation. It is the final judgment. And here are some categories. First of all, there was the judgment of the cross. There is the judgment of the true church, and that is yet future. The church has not yet been judged. By the way, the judgment of the church appears at the seat of Christ, called the judgment seat of Christ, and in the Greek language, that word judgment is simply the bima, which is the rewarding seat. So at the end of the church age, the church is brought before the rewarding seat of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There is the judgment of the tribulation. Now, the tribulation is filled with judgment. You have In the first part of the book of the Revelation, you have the nation-against-nation idea, you have uh, men fighting men, you have Antichrist, who is a person, but yet he's a very spiritual person in the sense that he is occupied by Satan himself, possessed and guided by satanic strength and power. So that becomes a spiritual dynamic and also brings immeasurable judgment. And then you have the judgments of God upon the world, and that is called the wrath of God that comes upon the world, seen in the seven judgment bowls or the seven vials that the Revelation talks about. Then there is the judgment of the great harlot. The great harlot is the great ecumenical church. The ecumenical church will not go in the rapture. The ecumenical church won't even know the rapture happened. Uh, ecumenical church is going to miss it entirely for, because a couple of reasons is number one, they don't believe the Bible. And the other thing is they don't know salvation through Christ. And because they don't know the Bible, they don't believe the Bible, they don't know the uh, actual redemption process through Jesus Christ. They talk about water baptism as saving you. They talk about good works as saving you. They talk about building villages in some remote country as that which makes you a Christian, and so on. This is not Christianity. This is just, uh, this is not true. And this great ecumenical church will be a part of the great harlot in the judgment, Revelation chapter 17. There's the judgment of the tribulation saints, and uh, that, of course, we'll be looking at at somewhat of a resurrection for them. There's the judgment of the Old Testament saints, also in the form of the resurrection. There's the judgment of living Israel, we have the Israel of God that stands before God. And uh, by the way, the Israel that stands before God is not the church of this age. So do not believe that we are Israel. Israel is Israel. The church is the church. They will never be the same. But Israel, The church will have a judgment, the Bema. Israel stands, but Israel stands in contradistinction to the goat nation. So you have the sheep nations. And you have the goat nations. You have the judgment of the Gentile nations. You have the judgment of Gog and Magog. We're going to be making reference to that again tonight in this message. Gog and Magog appears on two different occasions in the scripture. You have them in the book of Ezekiel where Gog and Magog are seen. And that is probably at the time when Russia invades Israel. Then you have the Gog and Magog that we'll be looking at tonight, and we'll be spending a little time on that, so I won't mention that any further. We see the judgment of Satan, we see the judgment of angels, and we see the judgment of the wicked dead. So, for people who say there is no judgment, there's 12 judgments that the Bible clearly and distinctly tells us about. That is a part of what we see unfold in the scriptures So as you look at the uh, book of the Revelation chapter 20, it is here that we recognize the final judgments. And following this, judgment is finished. Following this, we move into a complete different situation. We move into a complete, complete different relationship, a very, very unique relationship that develops following this. But until this chapter is over, there is still the profound aspect of a great final judgment that is to come. So the first thing that I want us to notice is the judgment and resurrection of the tribulation saints. Many people will become Christians during the time of the tribulation. Now, let me just refresh you again. I know revelation is not that easy for some people. Prophecy is easy for some. It all falls into line, but for others it's a little difficult. So if I could just remind you, That the church is gone. When the rapture happens, no Christians are on the earth, absolutely zero. No Christian is left behind. Every born-again believer is gone. Every child in a state of innocency is gone. The world is void of anyone who has any righteous standing with God when the tribulation begins, so that when the tribulation begins, It is all do it on your own because you are on your own, because it is the world doing things as the world knows how to do them. The truth is that the world does things the way it does. It leads to utter chaos, and that's exactly what's going to happen in the tribulation period. However, God seals to himself 144,000 witnesses, witnesses to the name of Jesus Christ, witnesses who are sealed by God, These witnesses are Jewish men who are taken out of the 12 tribes of Israel so that God will choose them and God will uniquely give them a commission. And that commission is to take the gospel of the kingdom and talk about the coming kingdom so that men and women throughout the tribulation period can hear the preparation to get into the kingdom of God. No man can get there except he's born again, Jesus said, and that was what they will be preaching during the time of the tribulation. And what will happen is that many people will believe the witness of the 144,000. They're unique men. They're not like us. They are fallen men, but the Bible puts them in a very unique position. They are very preserved, very protected. And because they preach the gospel, the pure gospel, Many people will be converted. Many people will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will happen is most of them will not survive. Most of them will die because of various reasons. We'll look at those reasons. But the fact is that when it comes to Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, we have the judgment and the resurrection of people who had become Christians during the tribulation time. Here's the verse. 1,000 years. So this is a big verse. Says an awful lot. But there's one thing that you notice here that's distinctly clear is that these tribulation saints who are resurrected at the end of the tribulation will enter into the kingdom of God where Christ reigns and where Christ rules and they will live and reign together with Jesus Christ for thousand years. that thousand years is mentioned frequently in Revelation 20, there isn't one reason in the whole wide world why that figure thousand should be anything else but a thousand. You can't make it something else. When the Bible says a thousand days, that gives you x number of months. It cannot be anything else. So to make that some kind of a spooky thing, That's how can you ever know you're telling the truth if you deal with spooky things. It's spooky, it's a thousand years. That's what the Revelation chapter 12 verse 4 says, and that's why we emphasize the literal aspect. They're resurrected from the dead. That's the judgment that will come. As they're resurrected, they will face the living Christ. They died for their witness of Jesus Christ. We were listening to a little podcast just before from one of Dennis Prager's university little five-minute segments and a man from Egypt was speaking on it and he was making a statement about the people that are being persecuted today and he actually said, now Dennis Prager is not a Christian, he's a Jew, but he's a very conservative, orthodox, and he also is very tender towards Christianity. But these people are saying that Nobody in the world is persecuted like Christians are being persecuted today. He made a statement of interest where in the whole part of that world surrounding Israel that there used to be tons, high, high percentage of people that were Christians and that's been reduced to about 4% because of persecution. So they have almost totally wiped out Christianity in that region all around the Top part of Africa, surrounding over towards Israel, because of the anti-Christian sentiment. And you know what? You don't hear CNN talking about that. Uh, you don't hear uh, you don't hear Fox News talking about. It. You don't hear anybody. the The persecution of Christians is not newsworthy. It's okay to wipe this group of people out. And that's what they were saying in this little podcast. Found that rather interesting. So these people that get slaughtered in the time of the tribulation, will anybody in the world care? Will there be any headlines? Thousand Christians in this village slaughtered. Thousand Christians in this village slaughtered. Will that ever appear that time? Well, whether it does or not, we don't know that now. But we do know that many, many people who surrender to the gospel of Christ in the tribulation will die because of their witness for Christ. I was emphasizing this morning how important it is for the church as a body to be on the move as a whole, that we don't have the splinter that is so true in so many churches where you have a small portion doing the work and a larger portion just more or less being observers. And that's how it is in many churches today. That's something that we want to try to address and keep on working towards, that we have a church body, a church body at work, a church body in unison, a church body doing a a thing together. But these people, because they get saved, they treasure their salvation because they knew there was no other answer for their dilemma. So they witnessed for Christ, and uh, many of them died because. They also died in defense of the Word of God. That's found that very interesting. In Verse number 4 again tells us this. Because they were saying that the Word of God is truth. And because they dared to say the Word of God is truth, the humanist system then says you are worthy of death. That day is coming. It's not just a matter of today where the humanist system makes us look like dummies when we say we believe the Word of God. But in that day, it will be slaughter if you say you are, believe in the Word of God. It's going to be a slight difference from what we do today. Today, we are free to say here we believe the Bible. We're also free to say it outside. There's still freedom of speech, But that's not always acceptable out there. It's very acceptable in churches like ours. And thank God for that. But it's because of churches like ours that people more and more need to stand in defense of the word of God and say that the word of God is true. And these people were doing that. They were defending the word of God and for that they died. In, well, they will. The tribulation is still future. Number three, they will have died because they refused to worship the Antichrist and the image. This is the big one. Because the Antichrist comes midpoint of the tribulation to reveal himself. He's already functioning before then. But in the middle point of the tribulation, he walks into that unique temple, uh, rebuilt for the purpose of Jewish sacrifice. He walks into that temple and he desecrates it. Daniel had predicted it. Jesus made reference to Daniel's prophecy when he said that which Daniel spoke about, when the abomination of desolation comes and stands in the place where it ought not, Then you know that the time is here. And so when the Antichrist comes, he will demand absolute obedience from the world. And people will do that. People will receive his mark and people will then say, well, you know, we're not going to suffer the consequences of not obeying this person. If if he says that we have to have a mark to do business and to do trade, to have work and to be able to buy and sell, then we're just going to go ahead and take it. And that's how the world is going to be. But those who have heard the witness of the 144,000 know by now that the Antichrist will have this system and that to do so will also mean they're sealing their eternal doom. Do you believe that? The evangelical world today is lightening up on that. The evangelical world today is saying that we are not so sure about that anymore. We, we think that people who take the mark of the beast can still be saved. There are some prominent men saying this. And I want to say to you tonight, that's not what the Bible says. That is what some prominent men are saying, but the Bible is not saying it. And it's just like some prominent men some years decided that hell is just way too great a judgment, so we've got to change it. I'll tell you, if man has the power to change hell, he's pretty powerful. And if he can come along and if he can change the purpose of the Antichrist, he's also pretty powerful. The truth is that the Antichrist is about death. The Antichrist is about hatred towards God. And so then anybody that will say, I am not going to take your mark, death. So when God said, if you take the mark of the beast, this is the absolute defiance of everything right and good and hopeful. And so people who take the mark of the beast are obviously sealing themselves and sealing their doom. As we read that these people died in the tribulation period, in the future, because they refused to worship the image and the beast. They will die because they refused the number of the Antichrist. What's the time of their resurrection? If you look at verse 5 of Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to read this verse a couple of times, emphasizing just a subtle difference here. But I want you to notice that in verse 5, what's the time of their judgment? But the rest of the dead... Lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Now, do you get that? There is a difference in judgment times. That's what I'm trying to tell you today. There's a difference in judgment times. The amillennial people, the the non-tribulation believers, the non-rapture believers, the non-kingdom believers, they'll tell you there is... One resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the unrighteous. That's what they're going to tell you. And they're going to tell you that that is it. The Bible does talk about that one. The Bible talks about the resurrection of the just, and we have a picture of the resurrection of the just, and I'll explain that to you tonight. You also have the resurrection of the dead, but they don't happen simultaneously. They do not come with one uh, at one juncture in the future, there's a vast difference. So here you have the resurrection of the tribulation saints. We just talked to you about that from verse 4. Did you get that? This is the tribulation saints, people who died in the tribulation, but the rest of the dead live not until when. So there's a thousand year period difference between the resurrection of the tribulation saints and the final resurrection. So we see the first resurrection spoken of in verses 5 and 6. Now we're going to go back to those verses again. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years are finished. This is the first resurrection. What is the first resurrection? Well, there are about 11 of them. I've mentioned them to you at the very beginning of this message tonight. There are resurrections that have happened along the way. Well, let's just read verse 6 before we move on to that. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him 1,000 years. So we have... First of all, we had the resurrection of Christ. That goes back now 2,000 years ago approximately. That was the unique resurrection. There have been a few other resurrections, but the unique resurrection is the first fruits. It is the one where Christ is raised to never ever taste of death again. Every other resurrection was temporary. So every other person who ever was raised Elijah was taken into heaven, Enoch was taken into heaven, but everybody else who was ever raised from the dead died again. But not so with Jesus. Jesus Christ is the unique one. He died and he rose to never taste of death again, but to live eternally. So that's the first part of the first resurrection. Then you have the Jerusalem saints who also were raised at the resurrection. We are not told what happened to them, but we assume they died again. Unless somehow God and his program took them up to glory. We're not told what happened to them, but they were raised out of the graves. The graves were open and they were raised. Then the third one is the rapture. That is the catching up, the end of the church age. Now again, there is so much chatter today about the no rapture concept that there isn't any such thing. I just was really amazed today. at just reading an article about how Jay Adams, he's, he's one of the prominent names in the whole counseling ministry for Christian counseling, and he's written a paperback book that categorically says there is no rapture and there is no kingdom. I said, this is amazing. I have the greatest respect for Jay Adams, but I never ever checked out his eschatology. Let me say this, that there are a lot of people you can learn an awful lot of good things from, but if you check their eschatology and it's all haywire, well, be careful what you read and what you believe. That doesn't mean I would not trust Jay Adams for counseling advice and, and how to sort out marital issues and how to sort out different types of issues. I think he's, he's excellent that way. But when it comes to the, the eschatology aspect, uh, I'm sorry, that I, I just get a little keyed up. When I see big-time names in the evangelical world and fundamental world, when I see them say there is no such thing as a rapture, like, how can you not see it? In 1 Thessalonians 4, where the Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection of different levels of people and that those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up. How can you not see that that's a catching away? There's no other way to look at it. There is no other interpretation of that. It's a catching up. It's a catching away. Just because we call it rapture, that's because the word goes through certain filters to become rapture in the English language. But the idea of a catching up is just as simple and clear as can be from the languages from which it was translated into our English language. So that is the, that's the rapture. That is when the dead in Christ, New Testament saints, not Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, From the time of Christ until the time of the rapture, they are raised. We who are alive and remain, we shall be caught up so that we shall be with the Lord forever. That is, to me, is the most unique of all of the resurrections that are yet to come. Then there's the two witnesses in the middle of the tribulation. They die. They're in the streets of Jerusalem for three days. They're observed by the world. They are also seen to be resurrected and God takes them home to be with them, and we lose track of them from there on. Then there is the righteous Israel of Old Testament at the end of the tribulation. So what happens to those who probably Adam, I don't know for sure about Adam and his state, uh, would assume because he accepted of the sacrifice of the sheepskin to be dressed, and because of Noah, who was considered to be the righteous one before God, then you have, of course, you have Abraham and all of these. These all died not having received the promise. They are not raised in the time of the rapture. The rapture is for the church. The church is New Testament. The church is that which Christ came to build. It's not the same as Israel. It doesn't replace Israel. It's different. It's unique. The church is the church. Israel is Israel. But the Old Testament believers, those Who had brought their lambs, their bulls, their grain offerings, their pigeons, their turtle doves, whatever they brought. And the high priest took the blood of these animals and he put it on the mercy seat. And what happened here was the sins of these people was covered. And they would come and do this every year so that the sin of that year would be covered. they do it again. The sin of that year would be covered. The sin of that year would be covered. These people ultimately would die. Where are they? They're waiting resurrection. They're waiting for the blessed hour when God's focus on Israel will be there. And when the tribulation is over and he is done dealing with Israel in the present context, the Old Testament Israel will also be raised. Every believer of the Old Testament economy who died in faith, hoping for the promise, believing in God, having his sins covered, he will be raised at the end of the tribulation in order that he might enter the kingdom of God. See, the whole idea of man is to enter into the kingdom of God. I get really concerned about people who deny the kingdom. To me, that's no small deal. To me, that's pretty big. It's pretty significant. So these people are going to be entering the kingdom to serve with Christ for 1,000 years. Then you have the tribulation martyrs. I mentioned them to you. So that when this is done, this is the first resurrection. So the first resurrection includes everything prior to the kingdom era. Where everyone righteous, everyone ever put his faith in God, through the various stages is raised up to be with him and will serve with him. What are you and I going to be doing? Well, I believe that because we are raptured seven years before the kingdom, We go to be with Christ, we get to be his bride, we get to be at his uh, great celebratory uh, feast that happens in Revelation chapter 19. We get to reign together with Christ. Those who are raised at the end of the tribulation get to reign together with us and with Christ. There are literal subjects who enter into the kingdom They are flesh and blood, capable of rebellion, capable of dying, capable of anything that any sinful man can do, but not the resurrected ones. The resurrected ones are confirmed in their state of righteousness, never to be tested again. Never will we be tempted again after the resurrection has taken place. So when we enter that kingdom of heaven, there's no test for us. We are going to be happily serving with the King of kings and Lord of lords. So the first resurrection has taken place. You've got all of these various stages. There's, it's not a different resurrection. It's called the stages of resurrection, the first resurrection. Then you have the judgment of Satan, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. Then we read that when the thousand years are expired. So what happens in a thousand years? Well, by now you know that Jesus Christ is king, sitting on the throne of David his ancestor, so he's sitting on that throne, which was promised. We talked about that Wednesday night. That throne is promised to be there, and King Jesus will occupy it. So that makes it uniquely and distinctly a Jewish type of kingdom that is to come, but it also have the church. When the thousand years, and we worship him, we serve him, and the earth is at peace for 1,000 years, why? Because Revelation 20 says, that the, the spoiler, that the person who is the troublemaker, the person who makes difficult things in life, is tied up. So he has no influence. So the devil has nothing to do with anyone in the millennial age. God is able to put a cap on him so that he is held captive and has zero influence on the world. Then the world will be at peace. So that tells me that every discord that is in the world is satanic. Every fight in the world is satanic. Every war in the world is satanic. Everything that happens that's a conflict to hurt and to damage is satanic. That is what Satan came to do. He came to harm. He came to destroy. That's what he is. He is the destructive person. How do we tell that? Well, when he's tied up in the bottomless pit, the world's at peace. Because the king of righteousness and the king of peace will be ruling at that time. But when the thousand years are expired, Satan is loosed out of his prison, verse number seven, and shall go out. Watch what he does. As soon as he is released from his captive location, he goes out to deceive the nations. That's the first thing that he does. What was the first thing he did in the Garden of Eden? He came up to Eve. Who was deceived? No, not Adam. He saw what was going on. Eve was deceived. So he came to deceive the first human beings that were ever created by God, deceiving them. Then when he comes out of the abyss in Revelation chapter 20, first thing he does is he goes out to deceive those who had been living. And might I say to you to make it clear for you, okay, those who are born in the kingdom era. Not the saved who enter the kingdom era. Those who are born in the kingdom era. So those who are born in the kingdom era, they have a decision to make. The ones that have entered the kingdom had made the decision. But the ones that are born in the kingdom, they have to make a decision. They have to make a personal decision to receive Christ. They all will, right? No, they all won't. There are many that will not, even though he's physically present. People will just absolutely take him for granted, not the nations. They're, they can't operate without his, uh, without his consent and without his approval. But individuals are not going to take Jesus Christ personally. There will be many, I suppose, that will, but we're not told how it's going to break down. But one thing is certain. He goes out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Here you have Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. That tells me that that's an innumerable amount of people who immediately follow Satan and his deceptive ways. Why does man do that? Why did they do that in the Garden of Eden in the first place when they had every opportunity to do right and to be privileged forever and eternity? Why did they do that? Because Satan is a deceiver. He can trick you, you know that? You know, I might say, well, I'll never ever fall for anything the devil puts before me. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. He can trip us up like you wouldn't believe. I'm only dependent on the mercy of God to keep me going. I'm not dependent on any ability to fight Satan. Absolutely not. He is too powerful a foe. We see that at the very beginning. We see that at the very ending. This is a major anti-God person. He is the archenemy of God. He is the major competitor. He doesn't have the strength God does, but he has far more than anybody else does. So, between these two, We have only one choice, go God's way or go Satan's way. Satan's way is obviously the losing way. But here he comes and he gathers Gog and Magog and there's an innumerable number of them. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. What is the beloved city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Always has been the target of attack of Satan. Always has been the target of attack of the unbelieving world. So, they encamp, they build a large millions, probably multiple millions of people that camp around. If you can get a picture of that, wow. But notice in verse 9, would you read that together with me, please, the latter part, just that last clause? And fire comes down from God out of heaven. I was going to say, is that neat? But it's horrendous. It's horrendous. You talk about People being slaughtered during the tribulation as going to be small amounts compared to the end of the kingdom. People that are going to be slaughtered, but they're going to be slaughtered by God. In the tribulation, when God puts an end to Russia and to its attacks against Israel and the uh, cooperating nations together with Russia... Israel ends up burning their weaponry for seven years. That's also Gog and Magog. That's a complete different picture than this. That Gog and Magog, their weaponry is burned, and it takes seven years to do so. That tells me that that happens at the beginning of the tribulation. But here, we have no time factor involved. What we've got here is God zaps, and they're disintegrated. They're gone. Now Satan... And all of those who trusted him in the end of the kingdom era suddenly devoured with fire coming down from heaven to destroy them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we notice that Satan is loose to carry out his destructive purpose he gathers the unbelieving from the Manil, millennial reign, Gog and Magog. And this gives you kind of a sense of where Gog and Magog happens to be. So if you notice way up north you have the three arrows, the two arrows actually that come out of Russia, from Bishak and Tubalz to know those. Then you have arrows coming out of other nations close to Russia. Then you've got arrows coming out of the Iranian area, the Assyrian area, out of the Turkey area, out of the Egyptian, the southern Sudan, and these other places. These are coming together. They are in the same format as the Gog and Magog of the book of Ezekiel. What that tells me is the people with the very same hatred towards Israel will rise up with the same hatred against God. So Satan deceives them for the same purpose, and that's to fight everything that represents righteousness, and so that's what he does immediately, he comes out of his abyss. The unrepentant from the millennium will be destroyed instantly. The devil is cast into hell where the beast and the false prophet are. So the beast and the false prophet are obviously cast into the burning hell at the beginning of the kingdom on earth, or when tribulation ends, in that time period. But at the end of the millennium, that's when Satan, the big one, is cast into the lake of fire there to experience the same wrath that the antichrist and the false beast experience and will be forever in the lake of fire. That also contradicts the idea that you burn up and you're gone. If the beast and the false prophet are in the lake of fire for a thousand years, I mean, if you don't burn up in a thousand years, you're not going to burn up in 10,000 years. So I don't understand that. I don't even like it. But I'm going to tell you that's what the Bible says. So whatever somebody thinks of the Bible, that's up to them. I'm just going to believe it. Because of everything else the Bible tells me, I'm going to believe this too. Then you've got what is called the Great White Throne Judgment, and that is the final climax of all climaxes. This is it. This is the finish. This is the grand finale. This finishes judgment. Judgment is done when this one is done. So let's look at it in verses eleven through fifteen of Revelation chapter twenty, the judgment of the unsaved dead. Who do you have here? Well, let me just quickly run this by you for you. You have Adam and Eve's children. Were they all saved? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about that. Cain obviously was not. He's of that wicked one. Cain is of the devil, the Bible says. So obviously he is not a believer. So let's, let's say that Cain is the beginning of that of the human race that didn't know God and didn't care about God. Then from Cain you take every person of all of the ages who ever died, the multiple millions and millions of people who've died over the time, these people are going to show up at the end of the kingdom age when the great white throne judgment is established to take care of every soul that was ever born that didn't believe. Where's this place? I find it interesting, verse 11. So if you look at verse 11, if you would uh, just have a quick glance with me at it, I find this very interesting. And I saw a great white throne, him that sat on it. And what intrigues me is these words here, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. So you have earth, you have heaven, you have them fleeing away from this great white throne. So where's the great white throne? Possibly somewhere in space. I don't think that God wants that great white throne to ever be seen again. I think it's a one-time situation where he uses it for the extremities, for the biggest purpose that has ever happened against fallen mankind. This great white throne obviously appearing somewheres, not in heaven, not on earth, but hopefully it's out in space somewheres, and all of these flee away from them. Who are the participants? The participants, we find in verse 12, and I saw the dead, now watch this, small and great, insignificant people that don't have a name to them, the ones that have a name to them. They stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their work. So what's the purpose of the great white throne? First of all, it's not to determine eternal destiny. Let me just make the same comment to you about the judgment seat of Christ. Church age comes to an end. The judgment seat of Christ is set up. It's the Bema. The judgment seat of Christ does not determine where people go. Every person who appears before the judgment seat of Christ is already Saved, blood washed, headed for eternal bliss. He goes through the filter of that judgment seat. The filter is there to determine his works. What did we do with the responsibility? What did we do with the five talents? What did we do with the two talents? What did we do with the one talent? That's the idea of the judgment seat of Christ. When the great white throne judgment appears, it is not to find out who is going to heaven or who is going to hell. That's not what the great the great white throne does not determine eternal destiny. It is every unsaved, unrepentant person from the beginning of human existence up until the end of the kingdom era will stand before him, small and great, all of them to face judgment. It's as if the prosecuting attorney, the defense attorney have done their work and the judge is now ready just to simply take and say, okay, it's not to determine guilt or innocence. We know you're guilty and we know that now there's judgment to come and so it'll just be a matter of judgment. Now, fair enough, the books are open. It's the book of life. Oops, you're not there. Then the other books are open. Oh, I see that you've got all kinds of activity, from drug dealing, to drinking, to swearing, to lying, to cheating, to who you name it. It's the whole gamut of everything that sinful people do. I see you have a very long list here, boy. The fact is that some will have a much longer and a blacker list than others will. Not everybody is equally foul as somebody else in his activity and his belief, but I want you to know this, everybody's equally foul in heart. A heart is either washed clean or a heart is dirty black. It's one of the two. It's nothing in between. But the activity of the clean heart can be different. The activity of the dirty heart can also be different. To determine the degrees of punishment. What are the degrees of punishment? To, con- and to consign the wicked dead to the lake of fire. If you look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, we read, And the death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. First death is when people die. Second death is when people who die are confirmed in death. When they are told you will never live. You're going to be departed from God. You'll be separated from God. You will suffer the consequences of your unbelief for all eternity. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life. So if a person is not discovered in the book of life, if he's not there, he's cast into the lake of fire. No recourse, there's no court of appeal, there's no way possible to ever overturn this. So those who come out of the graves from the beginning of human history to wherever point in history they die, they stand before God to face. I think Adolf Hitler will face a judgment that few other men will face. I think that Stalin will face a judgment few other men will face. I think the Pope of Rome will face judgment that very few other people will face. I think that there are people throughout the history of the world that will stand out, and they will be, oh, those are the great ones, but oh, the horrendous judgment that these people are going to encounter. Then you take the person that maybe did all kinds of good things and just was a wholesome neighbor and a wholesome person and just did decently, maybe even ruled a country and maybe just did all kinds of decent things and maybe built hospitals and gave people therapy and helped them out with illnesses and all kinds of things and maybe bought ambulances for them and maybe built hospitals for them. And people say, surely that's a saint. Oh, let's say that heart never trusted Christ. Let's say that heart never believed in Christ. Say that heart says I don't need Christ, I make my own way. I'll tell you what, that man will be there. He's not going to face the same judgment, Hitler will. But the least, the least of the judgment of hell will be so horrendous and there's no end. It just an eternal state The book of the Revelation would be very sad if we had to close it there, but we don't. We can hope the next pages that just kind of just open it all up to show us something really uniquely wonderful, and that's what we're going to do next Sunday night. But for tonight, I just want us to realize that there is a final judgment to come. So the people that are looking for a church that's non-judgmental, well, it's not the church's business to judge, by the way. But it's the church's business to speak of judgment. It's our business to warn of judgment. It's our business to say that there is a judge. I am not the judge. There is a judge. And so he will take care of absolutely everything. You're heaven bound. I'm sure we all are here tonight. I trust so. You've got a blessing in store. You're not heaven-bound? Not so much. What a horrendous thing it would be after all we've heard, after all we've seen, then to face the fiery judgment of a God who says, I cannot let you into my heaven. cannot let you in. Only authority we have to get into heaven is the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ. That alone... And that alone, when we are washed in the blood, when we are saved by Jesus Christ, we have heaven in the future. We bypass that, we've got hell in the future. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. If you're in the Elmer area, we would love for you to come and visit our church. For more information, visit openbible.ca. You can check out our show notes for the website.